Hi everybody and thanks for tuning in for another episode. Today's guest went from drug addiction and prison time to real estate flipper and investor. If you need an inspirational story to turn your life around, this is the episode for you. Whilst ordering at a fast food drive-thru, he overdosed in his car. This was his rock bottom and since then he's done everything to turn his life around. He now works with trusted business partners and uses real estate as his vehicle to achieve his financial freedom and he's well on the way. Ladies and gentlemen, Sterling Shrout. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. So your story is one of prison, homelessness, drug addiction, growth, real estate, um, sort of it's a very, uh, I don't know, a full life you've lived so far. What sort of order did that come in? Was it the prison, the homelessness, the drug addiction? Uh, yeah. So originally just being poor growing up and then like raised by a single mom, you know, I know she didn't have a ton of choice in that. Um, bouncing around a lot as a kid. Uh, regardless, I I started selling drugs uh, that was my way out of poverty. I remember like trying to grow pot when I was real young and like, um, <clears throat> you know, it was like 14, 15, um, the movies like blow with Johnny Depp where he like sold drugs and you know, cocaine, whatever that was, that was who I emulated. I didn't have positive role models, uh, at least not ones that attracted me in any way. So selling drugs ultimately led to prison. And I spent three years in prison from, right before 19 to right before 21 or uh, 23, sorry. And, you know, even in prison, I didn't, I still didn't have the mindset to get educated when I was in there. Uh, there wasn't a lot of programs they offered, but regardless, I had the abilities to like have books sent to me and I could have chose different people to hang out with people that were trying to better themselves, not diving into the prison culture and just getting tattoos and fighting and drinking and whatever. So you mentioned you mentioned the prison culture and you were quite young, you 19 when you went to prison. What's what's the reality because I think we from someone like myself that's never been to prison, Australian system's very different to the US system. We see um, from what we see in the media, the the prison cells, they're really crowded. It's it seems like a powder keg sort of a situation. What was the reality like when you went in there? So where I was, um, the level like one and two, like one, two, three, that's kind of your levels, three being the worst, one being the least, I guess. Um, I was at, I was a level two A. So I was in like a medium minimum camp and it was like the U.S. system, um, at least here in Ohio, it's just like people warehousing. I know it's like this a lot all over the country here. Um, so I was in a room with 144 other other males. Wow. And it was just rows of bunk beds separated by half concrete walls. Uh, the only place that you were in a cell confined and by yourself would be in uh, in like when you get punished there. Like you go to jail and jail, It's they call it the hole. Um, that's where you're in a small cell, but even that's overcrowded. Like our prisons are extremely overcrowded. Mm. Um, 
even that, you know, you're sharing what would normally be a one person solitary cell with three other people. So you're sleeping like people are sleeping on the floor. You have to step over them to use the bathroom in front of them. And, uh, but even so back to main population. Yeah. The, the culture, I mean, it's, so everybody, you know, doesn't, I don't know. It's not a culture of growth. It's not a culture of, you know, trying to be the best person possible. It's all men. It's a lot of violent people. Um, you know, you have everything from murderers to sex offenders, to drug traffickers, to gang members. And, um, as far as like racially, it's, it's still racially divided, like 1960s riots. It's, um, you know, people cross those lines. Like, you know, I had a few black friends, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's racially segregated, um, sexuality segregated, um, everybody. And that's, that's done by the inmates. Um, and then violence. So that's like respect. I should call it respect, not violence. Um, lack of respect is immediately, uh, dealt with through violence. So if somebody disrespects you, it's a chain effect. If you don't, uh, stand your ground, basically. So it, it was not, not a place like most, like everybody from school went to college and I went to prison. And so Mm. my education and their education are the way that like my brain formed after that. Uh, I know when I got out of prison, I had a real problem with like intimacy and not necessarily sexual intimacy, just intimacy with anyone like, you know, hugging or touching, like you don't touch. Just the trust issues. Yeah. It's just weird to be that close to somebody um you know we're not holding hands and hugging and skipping around the yard in prison it's it's a very uh you know hostile place so like people standing too close to me at the gas station like you know things like that would just freak me out um yeah i don't recommend it 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 made me patient and it made me there's certain things that i was able to take from that just like later I did with my addiction where I take the qualities that I, I developed or the skills or the, you know, whatever, and repurpose it for good. So I am patient. I am, mm. uh, mm, I don't know at all. There's not too many things I gained from there. <laughs> Patience might be it. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it's a it's willingness not to go mind. back. Yeah, maybe. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I uh, spent 36 days in the hole and that, that was mentally tough. So I, I have some mental toughness. I'll, I'll take that, I guess. And what were that? Is that for fighting? Is that sort of standing up for yourself and fighting? Is that what you'd go to the hole for? Um, I've, that one was, so the rules change in there. Uh, once you've been in like incarcerated, your normal, liberties are gone your normal you know constitutional rights here in america they they no longer apply like um the 13th amendment i think is an example of that so anyways uh i was under investigation so they i didn't know what i did wrong i probably did know what i did wrong but (laughs) they didn't have to tell me what they thought i did wrong they didn't have to give me a reason they just put me in there and i had to wait for approval to get out basically so they they accused me of bringing things or having something thrown over the it, they were close but it wasn't right i know that 
Um, it was like bringing things into the prison, basically. So, so like contraband. <laughs> contraband, yeah. You said you were in prison for three years and you were in there for drug trafficking. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. What What were you oh, – yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm not used <laughs> Sorry, to that in I'm Australia. In that. It's usually, yeah, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were you dealing? What were you trafficking? What's the difference between dealing and trafficking? Just the quantity? Uh, so between trafficking and aggravated trafficking, here is the quantity. So I had aggravated trafficking, mm-hmm. so it was 50 times the bulk amount. But in my defense, the bulk amount for like ecstasy is five pills. So it's something you could put in like a medicine cup for, you know, children. Um, not that we want to give drugs to children. Definitely not. um so mainly marijuana and then just party drugs and psychedelics that was my thing so okay so what was it like the day that you got out talk me through that day so extreme anxiety and actually i've never told anybody this before so this is an exclusive um i actually brought drugs out of prison um not hardcore narcotics but i'm trying to think ultram or tramadol so it's like a nerve pain pill kind of um i actually brought those out of prison because i knew that they would get me high in some way shape or form and it would help me cope with the rest of that day because i was extremely nervous uh smartphones came out and uh money changed colors and you know they're like just everything I didn't know what to expect. And I was, uh, I knew that I was damaged mentally from those three years. So. Mm. So what's the reality? Who's, who's, you said your, um, your mom was a single mom. Who's meeting you at the prison? Uh, mom, mom and my sister. They, they came to pick me up and, uh, you know, my sister took me out to get a, you know, a couple outfits and, uh, spent the day with them and I think I barbecued when I got home. It was four days before my 23rd birthday. So just kind of hung out at home and that's where I went back to was, was home with my mother. Okay. And then where do you go from there? How do you sort of rebuild your life after, um, having the mental effects of being in prison? So the mental effects, I mean, I think if I had the right people in my life, uh, that wouldn't have been as big of an issue. So if I had went, say, either had connection or went back to or or went to a place where, you know, my family was there and I had like positive male role models doing things that, you know, were were productive and positive, I think that would have definitely impacted me. But then just the way that this worked was I got out. And so I had done every day of my time and here it's illegal to put somebody on parole that has done every day of their time, like mandatory time. So they created this thing a few years prior that was called post-release control. So I still got out on parole. They just renamed it so that it wasn't breaking any laws. And um, so I got back out into the same situation kind of that I had as a juvenile, which was probation officer looking over my shoulder. Now I'm back living at my mom's house. I have no 
possessions. I have no vehicle. I have no, you know, infrastructure in my own life. Um, it's extremely yeah. hard to rebuild your life getting out. Cause you, you know, they gave me like 60 bucks and you know, they give you release money so that you, you can feed yourself that first night basically. And, uh, tell you good luck from there. So I, I definitely understand why like the recidivism rate is so high. I think it's four out of five people in the first five years go back. So, so how did you, how did you make it? So you weren't one of those statistics. What did you do differently? I ran. <laughs> I ran uh, to Florida where they wouldn't extradite me after I broke a bunch of rules. So that's the truth. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. Can... We're not to the productive years Sorry, yet. Sorry, you know. <laughs> We're still in the okay. <laughs> Being a little wrapped back. So what? So you knowingly broke the rules, obviously, probably to get by because you couldn't get another job. Yeah, well, no, I mean, at this point, so, like, prior to prison, you know, I used, uh, like, I smoked weed every day, and I would take probably, you know, benzo benzos or, you know, Xanax-type drugs and party with my friends and all that. Well, I went to prison, I was, like, you know, looking back, that's where I started to develop addictive tendencies. Like, drugs helped me deal with the worst thing that could happen to me in society outside of, you know, dying or something. And then, you know, getting out and then being rejected again or feeling rejected again, I should say. Um, I coped again with drugs. Who except for this time, it was actually hard drugs. Who were you I'm rejected sorry? by? Who were you rejected oh, by? Oh, uh, like society or either just yeah. society as a whole or like, you know, the infrastructure. Like I couldn't get a house. I couldn't get or, you know, housing like apartments don't rent to everybody that has felonies. Some people do, some people don't. Jobs, a lot of jobs didn't like people with fresh out of prison just because most people fresh out of prison don't do too well. Um, I didn't have a driver's license. I had war I had uh, fines blocking my license. I had to pay off a bunch of money to be even able to drive. Um, I mean, the list is pretty long for, for things that weren't necessarily okay. in my favor of my own doing, but not making it any easier so you ran where did you run to uh so like where i'm at is kind of closer to canada it's in the northern part of the united states and where i ran was the was the bottom so florida so i ran to the gulf coast uh, and, and technically i ran to rehab uh by this point I, i'd been completely strung out on you know heroin and you know using cocaine and serious drugs and so um, my family was down with this idea. They didn't care. They were just happy to get me into rehab. So I went to Florida to the Salvation Army, which is a, like a homeless shelter slash rehabilitation center. So I lived there, worked for them, and got my treatment there. And I ended up staying there for like almost a full year. And I worked for them for about a year as well. So down there for two years in total? Yes. And once you're... Uh, finished with that Salvation Army process, what happens then? The So you graduate from their program and you can stay, like, it's a six-month program. You can stay there for up to six more months, I believe, while you go get a job somewhere else. And they actually, you know, enable you to save up money and um, you're able to kind of build an infrastructure for your life. And it's kind of the correct way to release somebody back into society. 
uh, or also sometimes if you work really hard or if they see something in you, they'll hire you. So I got, I, you know, I worked my ass off and uh, got hired as a truck driver for picking up donations. And so when I hit my year mark, I didn't get a, you know, I've, I apparently have a lot of character defects or de defects when I reflect on this. Um, I didn't get the raise I thought I deserved. And after that, it was kind of this downhill spiral. I got a 10 cent raise in my defense. It's not much of a race, but, um, <laughs> sorry, my sarcasm is, um, hard to come through on these. No, it's fine. I'm very sarcastic. No, no, no. I'm very sarcastic okay. myself. So it's fine. Yeah. Well, anyways, I ended my, my, um, my time in Florida relapsing and, you know, spent a few months down there getting high and trying to get sober and bouncing back and forth and did that made it to georgia so like a little bit a little ways up towards ohio and then i ended up coming back to ohio uh to get back in a relationship that i had prior to prison so did you find that that was healthy for you getting back into a relationship that was pre-prison or unhealthy was it going back to unhealthy habits yeah i mean that was playing with fire i mean <laughs> so both of us now like we're both in recovery now um <laughs> Sorry, I told you, we're still, we're getting to the good part, I promise, but um, there's a lot of bad decisions. Um, that or you're really good at finding all the bad decisions. I, I don't even think we're hit, like, we're barely skimming the surface. But Oh, let's dive no, deeper then, um, come on. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, if, if you know, looking back, it definitely wasn't a, a wise choice. That wasn't, you know, the smartest thing. Like, not many people recommended that. But, you know, it was the person that I wanted to be in a relationship with. Um, I thought that I was, yeah. you know, I have, however long I had sober, I thought that I was well enough off to, to make it at that point. Um, turns out I was wrong. So <laughs> uh, the next couple <laughs> years, you know, now it's, <laughs> I tried, I did. So when I left for Florida, I, you know, I knew that some more trouble was coming because I had committed some crimes and you know, stolen things or I, I couldn't even tell you. you. Um, yeah. So I ended up, of course, don't incriminate yourself. Uh, I, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think I've got charged for everything, but no, I ended up back on probation. I was on probation for like 13 years total. Like, you know, it was, it was over, it was wow. half my life for, you know, a while. Um, I, I'm counting prison in there. So 10 years plus, you know, three years in prison, but I think that counts. So anyways, uh, coming back into the area where like my addiction was the worst in Florida, it wasn't as bad up here. It was the worst. And then, uh, Dayton, Ohio specifically, like where I lived, it had, uh, most overdose, most overdoses for, you know, a year and a half or so. It was always making national news for like the heroin epidemic, but specifically in the county I lived in. And so moving back to that obviously wasn't a good idea, but that's where all my family was. And that's where, you know, the people I wanted to be with were. So I fought through that the best I could, uh, getting sober, going to rehab or going to court ordered rehab, um, trying to get sober on my own. The thing that was different this time from before though, was something changed when I went to the Salvation Army. It wasn't just 
meaninglessness. It wasn't as much meaninglessness in my life. I had been sober for two years down there on like right under two years. And so I knew that there was something better than, you know, use the drugs. So when I would get high, I would always, that was when I started, I would call relapsing more than just opportunistically using drugs. Um, I would relapse, but I would try to claw my way back out of it. And that proceeded for the next two years where I would you know, do good for six months and relapse for six months and then do good for, you know, eight months. Like it got better. The, the relapse times got shorter. So I would get high and then I would be able to put something in between me and the drugs quicker. So we were getting better, but it wasn't stopping at that point. Okay. Is that a is that a, a typical story in a rehab? I know you work in rehab now. So is that a typical story in sort of a rehab process, the relapsing? Um it can be. I know like the most common story is like you'll run into the you know the people in in rehab it's their second, third, fourth, eighth, 15th time in rehab. Um, they're not there because they want to be, or they are there because they want to be this time, or, you know, their family pushed them to be there or a judge made them go or, you know, like it, it's usually people in addiction recovery. I've noticed a lot of, at least the very first time they're backed into a corner or, you know, later times, even they're backed into a corner and that's kind of what pushes them into recovery. Um, for okay. me, I think just having that taste of uh, liking who I was sober, that was, that was it. And that's what, I, that's still, you know, that's a big part of it today. What sort of time duration are we looking at when you were sort of trying to relapsing, trying to get yourself out of it again, relapsing, getting yourself out of it. And in the relationship with the person that you're playing with fire. Um, well, when I came back, I made it, a month before being around, uh, like say opiate pills or, you know, I can't think of the word right this second. Um, so like people, you know, snorting pills or abusing pain pills. Um, I, you know, I made it say a month and then I got high for maybe three months or so. And then probation caught up with that. And, you know, that shut me down for a while. I go to rehab for three months or something. I'd get out and be sober for six months. Um, but it would go from, I would relapse. Let's say the, the first time back was like three months. And then I think it went to like six months of using, then getting sober for six months. And that's when it started to go down. Then I would relapse, get high for two months and then, you know, like force myself to detox and get better because I didn't want to live like that anymore. And then something would happen and I'd relapse again, but I'd catch it. And, you know, in a month I would force myself and then, you know, in three weeks. And then the very last time, uh, I think I'd only been using for two weeks and then I overdosed. And that was the last time I used opiates. That was a traumatic experience. Are you comfortable talking about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not like excited, but I'm definitely I'm willing to talk about it just because there's other people that have, you know, either dealt with it or you know whatever. So I, so during one of those periods of sobriety, we decided that we wanted to have a kid. Uh, she had she has a three year old, or we have a 
uh, now seven-year-old, but uh, at the time, so she had, let's say, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, uh, we decided that we wanted to have a kid together. So we we were successful at that. And um, he was born, say, February 18th, 2019. Um, so that I was sober during the pregnancy and when he was young, uh, the first few months of his life. And then I'd say he was like seven or eight months old, six or seven months old, somewhere in there. It was August after February. So however many months that is, um, I had relapsed. And like I said, it had been a couple weeks and I was, you know, using, but I wasn't using real, like super crazy. Like I, I hadn't devolved into that level of addiction yet. I'm sure it would have happened. I just, there was an intervent, <laughs> some sort of intervention there. Um, so I, I dropped my son off at Taco Bell. <laughs> I dropped my son off at my mom's to go get Taco Bell. Um, I had, you know, purchased drugs previously. And I took the opportunity of having no kids and, you know, being at Taco Bell at the drive through window ordering food to uh, shoot up heroin well, I guess that's just the best way to say it um, so when I did this uh, it was something I bought from somebody I hadn't dealt with before and I noticed it was like real crystalline and like fentanyl's all the rage now and it's just it's just what they're selling now and it's extremely dangerous uh, so I it the from uh, you know however many years of using it 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 looked like I should be careful with it basically so I just used a tiny bit and, um, yeah, like I said, I was, I was actually at the ordering window and she was getting, you know, she had just asked me, you know, what I'd like to order. I did my little drugs and, uh, before I could even get the words out, you know, like cheesy bean and rice, whatever. Um, that was it. I was like somewhere else. I didn't know anything was wrong. I didn't know that, you know, I was motionless or lifeless in my car I didn't know that whatever um I was just somewhere else and then I remember feeling like dark I don't know you know who was there I'm sorry I'm going into exactly everything I remember um I don't know you know what I was talking to who I was talking to or community how I was communicating whatever I just remember like trying to like ask or understand like what this like darkness was that was creeping in around me and it like kind of like pulled me back or like sucked me in or whatever it was or just enveloped me or whatever the word is. So from that point, then I went to this, what I would imagine like laying under like train tracks in a subway tunnel, like a subway things going over you. Um, it was like black and white, like flashes. And then like the feeling of like traveling through a tunnel or something. And then it was just like nothing just like painful sound i want to say just like painful noise um and i'm like kind of like floating in my head no idea what's going on and then i start to hear something and it's like you know language i couldn't understand but then slowly it becomes words and um at this point we're actually at the hospital they the ambulance had gotten me to the hospital by the time they had like brought me back um and I remember them asking me what my name was and I didn't know my name. I didn't know where I was or who I was or when it was. 
I had no idea about anything, and I guess my brain was probably rebooting or something. But my social is what kicked kicked off. By the time my brain was, you know, booted up enough to remember stuff, my social triggered the memory. I spouted off my social. I didn't even know what it was. I just kind of threw out the numbers. I guess it was right. But then we're like wheeling into the hospital, and I went into um, something contractions or convulsions. I want to say it was like Smith's something. Um, I'm sure a simple Google search would tell me, but. Um, so without blood going to my extremities for a certain amount of time, uh, your body's natural response or my body's natural response is to, uh, jolt those muscles and like spasm, uh, convulse, make the blood pump to that area basically. Yeah. So I went into those, it was uncontrollable and they, <laughs> the sweet officers that were escorting me to the, um, emergency room, uh, thought that i was fighting them so the um they restrained me <laughs> for a minute as a, i told them i couldn't help it um but the nurse stuck up for me and she's 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 the one that labeled it and told them that i couldn't control it and then they still like made me promise that i would stop before they um uh, you know unrestrain me um so sorry i didn't mean to go off topic so either way um that experience it took me i mean i was like freaked out for a couple of days um and then still it hasn't happened in a while uh like a month maybe but i still wherever i was i remember like i can still kind of remember but just looking out over say a landscape or something um like that feeling i i did not know anything was wrong and so like um I still wasn't sure if I had died or not for a couple of days. You know I mean? Like that really messes with your psyche. Um, and every once in a while that feeling mm. will sink back in where I'm not a hundred percent sure that, you know, like, um, this year at new year's, um, the drastic turn my life took over the last year in a positive way. I was, you know, I think that's what sent me back into that feeling. Like I wasn't sure that this was real. Um, and that was like kind of an emotional thing. I hadn't let myself take a break to look back. We'll get to this part later, but um, yeah, so that was extremely traumatic and uh, it, it made me really not want to die anymore. That was all that's ultimately <laughs> what came from that is I, I have a really strong urge not to die. I don't want to leave my son to grow up without a father um, or a father, you know, like I didn't have a father present or my father present. Um, like, I think that's really important for young men. Um, I don't want, like, my, I don't know. I really want to live. There's a lot of things. I don't want to get too deep into it. I don't want to cry. But, um, yeah, it's a really strong urge to live. <laughs> it made not using easier. Well, that's good. Did, was the husp did the hospital ever tell you? Like, did you ever ask if you actually died? Um... No. So the way the things work here is like there's a war on drugs. So it, like instantly I went unconscious. Um, my foot was still on the brake. The car was running, keys in the ignition and drive. Um, foot on the brake. I just like, you know, my animation stopped. I just was like still. Um, I had my dog with me as well. And he's adorable, but um, protective. 
like okay so however long it took somebody to realize that i wasn't ordering food behind me to get pissed off enough to like check um and then when the cops actually did show up they had to have an animal control person take my dog uh remove my dog from the car because he was very protective and then the EMS people, whatever, got me to the EMS. I don't know if my heart necessarily um, stopped. I didn't ask. I could probably, like, find out. But for the first, like, six months, I didn't really process it. I would process – I had to process yeah. it chunks at a time. So that wasn't a question I was concerned with at that time. Like, now I would love to know, like, all the medical science, everything to it. I'd, you know, I could dive into it, but at that point, I just really, it was, it was really painful to think about, honestly. So that was a turning point. You decided you had, you didn't want to leave your son. Where do you go from there? From um, relapsing, you've got a new child, you're ODing in a drive through What's the next step? Yeah, so from there, it wasn't you know like i you know obviously i felt bad for but you know i was i was scared or i don't know you know obviously i knew that's not how somebody should be um but i did not like that's not a good dad that's not <laughs> dad material it's not a dad role model whatever um but yeah. i didn't like stick stick on that like i didn't get stuck on that um, it was, what can I do to make this never happen again? Like that, like okay. completely let's forget about the problem. Like, and just focus on the solution. Like, I do not want that to ever come around. I don't want that to even come close to ever happening again. Like, what do I need to do to make sure that never, ever happens again in any way, shape or form? So, yeah. So what did you do though? Um, like, how did you get yourself out of that cycle? So prior to that, the last time I had relapsed before that, um, when I got off of drugs, I went into what's called like medically assisted treatment or Suboxone. It's kind of like they used to have methadone. They still do. But Suboxone has a opiate antagonist and a partial opioid in it. So it kind of like blocks itself out. I probably said that wrong, but it kind of blocks itself out. You know, people that don't take it every day can get high off of it. But if you take it, in a low dose like you're supposed to when you're supposed to um it's you only get the negative effects so like you notice when you don't take it but when you take it you're just you know pretty much normal so i went back immediately following the overdose i waited whatever until i couldn't stand it anymore i went and started up my suboxone prescription again um and that enabled me to not like necessarily withdrawal super bad and not have to deal with all that psychological stuff that's really hard to get through and causes a lot of relapses in my experience. So I went from the overdose, just, you know, continued working. So I was already, you know, working for somebody else being like a handyman. Um, I just went back to working, spent time with my kids and I didn't, I don't think I left the house for a while outside of specifically working. I just wanted to be home. I didn't want to go anywhere. I just, I was still pretty shook from it. Um, I started looking for solutions. So like growing up or not growing up, um, early in recovery, when I started trying to get better, 
uh, I listened to a lot of TED Talks, watched a lot of YouTube videos, and uh, read you know audiobooks or read books and you know, listened to audiobooks. Um, I started like trying to figure out what I could do differently, um, build a better relationship with my brother-in-law, my sister's uh, husband. He's like a school teacher, mm-hmm. super legit, just like really good human being. I was, you know, I wanted to like spend time with people that weren't screwing up. I started looking for someone to like positive influences, someone to, yes. So that looking back, you know, to what is it, you know, a year and a half, year and three quarters now, whatever, um, that actually did make a big difference your brother-in-law was he receptive to that yeah um so everybody i mean i've always been pretty honest with everybody um he knew that you know i had issues with you know drugs and alcohol and that's one of the things that came from that rehab in florida was like being vulnerable or being open and being able to talk about stuff it's harder while you're actively using but as you know, mm-hmm. when you're when you're sober and you're trying to make stuff better, um, it's easier to just talk about it because if you don't talk about it to somebody else, like there's no potential for growth. Um, even when I was using, there were still people I could trust enough to talk to, or I felt that I could trust enough to talk to, or that could empathize with what I thought was my, you know, dilemma. Um, so like you have, you know, being vocal about what's going on. You know, you don't. I wouldn't recommend shouting it on you know, maybe it's social media or whatever, but like, you know, having somebody good to talk to in your life, I think that goes a really long way. So, and he, he doesn't actually immediately when I started hanging out with him, I didn't tell him. And, um, he invited me and uh, my wife and my kids on a vacation with them. And I like, it was to a lake house in Michigan and, you know, we were sober, but stuff was still messed up. Um, but taking me out of the situation that I was freshly out of, like physically separating me from it, like that little bit of distance for that week or whatever that we were gone. Like, I think that had a profound impact too. Um, I think that increased my chances for success. And he didn't find out about that till later, but that's a whole other topic. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I think we've, we have skipped around a, a little bit and I just want to re um, uh, redress something you had said that you had left florida and, and gone back home and you you got into a relationship with someone that you were with pre-prison but then you just mentioned that you went to the lake house with um your brother-in-law and your wife did you break up with your son's mother at this point okay so same person i just probably was using um past tense in the presence or present tense in the past whatever um, okay yeah it's the same girl for like 11 years pretty much so you've ended up marrying your your wife now is the woman that you were dating before pre-prison yes oh okay that's i just wanted to clarify that that's good <laughs> that's a happy yeah, ending sorry but yeah most people probably have more but yeah <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Tell me how you ended up in the situation where you're homeless. Okay. So yeah, like you said, we ended up together now at the end. Um, 
you know, even though, like, say she had, you know, certain addictions and stuff, or, you know, maybe lesser, but still in the same category, um, my addiction running rampant, we would break up, you know, and um, she would be tired of my BS, and when we would split up, you know, if we lived together, she had, a, you know, a daughter and I'm not going to like kick her out or if it was, you know, it might've been her place or whatever. I mean, there was multiple times. So yeah, me and her split up for a while. Uh, my mom was living in an upstairs apartment, like one bedroom somewhere. There just, there wasn't much of an option. So, uh, like sleeping in my car and like the Walmart parking lot, the, like there was only stints of, you know, maybe a week or something of not having a place to live in the last three years. Um, most of that homelessness was after prison, before rehab, in that two-year period. So, like the like the actually like not having a car to live in. That that's what I was going to ask. What what was the reality of being homeless? Were you living in your car? Were you physically sleeping on the streets? Like, what did that homelessness look like? So, I mean, there was there was a couple of nights that I spent outside, um, but most of the time it was. I was still what twenty two, twenty three, so to some extent at that age, at least the people I was hanging out with, it was acceptable to like I'm going to live in your basement for three days and then well i don't know if we called it that it was you know i'm gonna stay there don't uh not living there but you know it was bouncing around um you're couch surfing couch surfing using uh using relationships with with girls um to you know probably more for a place to stay and you know things like that there was a lot of nights in my car though. Like now that I'm thinking about it, there was a lot of nights, and I just probably didn't go to sleep either, just out using drugs. So it was, it was, um, God, it sucks. <laughs> what's, what's the, um, what's your mental state? What are you thinking of when you're, uh, spending these nights in your car? Cause I would have thought there would have been such a level of, vulnerability being out there not having the security of a house i would say that a car is probably better than just being on on the street i mean i've never experienced homelessness but i would think that that would be the case um how are you sort of processing this what are you thinking so i mean the drugs definitely have a big role in it uh there was a lot of crack cocaine use through these years so like that you know, stimulant or whatever mixed with opiates um, that keeps you out all night chasing drugs and chasing the cash to buy drugs, whether it's stealing or bartering or, you know, whatever you come up with, uh, the creativity you, you managed to come up with to stay high. Staying in the car was the vulnerable thing, in my opinion. Like, that was, um, I was more comfortable sleeping in the woods somewhere the chances of like a cop finding me so like after prison like luxuries were gone at, during prison you know those three years yeah so post that like laying laying your seat back and sleeping in a walmart parking lot and, like just putting something up on the windows like that's that was 
that was freedom in comparison uh, to prison. Obviously, looking back, that's not right or healthy, but uh, it's subjective. Like it's a reality. Though. Things about it's a, yeah. It's it, when you're living that reality, you don't necessarily. It takes something to kind of jolt you out of it. You know, it's like a that's a special thought of its own to be like, wow, my situation really sucks. Um, because that's just your reality. Like you said, it's your reality. That's you. I kept going lower and lower and lower, or deeper and deeper and deeper into addiction and what I accepted to be okay. So, mm. yeah. How did you? How did you stop that cycle? Was it just getting clean? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was ending up in a homeless shelter slash rehab in Florida. That was, that's what stopped. That was it. Like the worst okay. that it, that it was. Um, because I was in there with like people that literally only slept under a bridge um, and panhandled for their drugs and alcohol and food. Um, and then can, that's, that's, there's something to rehab where you're comparing realities. This is my reality. That's that person's reality. And like with drug addiction, it's all, you know, variations of bad. Somebody's reality is like, Oh yeah, I was, I was snorting too many, you know, uh, Vicodin and my parents said I have to do this or I'm going to lose my condo. And then somebody else is like on the brink of death from drinking themselves to death under a bridge every night. And, and then there's a million levels b below and above and everything else. So being forced to look at it there, that's I think what gave me back to a, a center of reality, like of what your life actually should be. And then there's the people that have gotten sober and like AA that you, that, you know, talk about where they were and where they're at now. And I think that regrounds you. So, how did you get to the stage where um no one wants to employ i know you had the truck driving job but um no one really wants to employ a felon and that you're i'm assuming it was a felony i don't we don't have the same system over here um you don't want to have employ someone with a criminal record and and i'm struggling to get a job and so and support myself to having a successful career in real estate. How did that all flip? So that was all post overdose. So, you know, we can pretty much say like, you know, 18 to what was I? 29, no, 28, 18 to 28. Um, there was just drug, drug, drug use, prison, just, uh, delinquency, whatever the, uh, miscreant or whatever the word is. Um, bad it was choices after the overdose that yeah a decade of bad choices um it it was after the overdose when i like i knew that that was now my bottom like that was now where my drug addiction would take me every time so just like we talked about that's your reality um you know it was never okay to, to shoot crack cocaine like that wasn't you know as a child or just to any normal person that's not how you should live but once you do it then it's more acceptable whatever so now like now we get to the point where i'm overdosing and like playing with like real life facing death um even though i had probably a, however many times now it was real um that was enough to change and then 
just developing a steady I was working steadily um and then just my mind was racing on how to fix this so that never happens again well you know like I said working for doing my handyman stuff and I talked about my brother-in-law uh he wanted to build an arcade and I've, you know, because of, like we talked about not being able to get a job, uh, it was Craigslist jobs. It was drywall painting. Can you, you know, fix this, fix that, you know, just doing whatever I could to make money. Um, so I built this arcade for him and, you know, I waited to get paid till we were done and I managed to do side jobs and pay all my bills and stuff. So I got this check when we were done. So I had like 3,500 bucks and this was a large sum of money. And I wanted to invest that. I'm like, you know, I'm very sure that investing is the only way to break out of poverty because if I just work and make enough to pay my bills, I'm never going to, there's never going to be a break point in that cycle. So I Googled how to invest $3,500 and luck, like to my luck or whatever, uh, there was a bigger pockets podcast episode called like turning 35 hundred dollars into forty thousand was so and so and he was buying use like or he was buying like old mobile homes like uh trailers in a trailer park or mobile homes in a mobile home park fixing them up and then owner financing to somebody and he would basically get what he put into them back as the down payment and then collect interest on the money that he financed out to the people for the rest of the payments on the on the trailer. So he was kind of the bank and it was just this little micro version of it, but it gave me this sense of like how money, how you can make money, make money. And then, uh, at the end mm. of the podcast, they recommended, you know, what's the biggest impact in your life. And it was rich dad, poor dad. And so of course I had to read that and that blew my mind. And then like, it just spiraled into this rabbit hole of like, um, entrepreneurship and money and, uh, how to use money, like financial education, all this stuff. Well, all in that, right in that beginning. So that literally that day was December 24th, 2019. Um, so it was whatever, four or five months after the overdose. Um, I remember that day specifically because of like, you know, the, the impact that had on me. Um, it was Christmas Eve. I was in the basement, like cleaning totes or, just cleaning stuff in the basement and um what cleaning totes totes like uh like storage oh okay like a like a yeah. bucket <laughs> okay like a plastic buckety thing i got it like a tote plastic tote yeah thing. yeah like <clears throat> getting ready okay. to put yeah getting ready to put christmas decorations away um i thought you said so... toad like a frog i was like you've got frogs in your basement okay oh no <laughs> Well, I mean, I've I've cleaned frogs too. I've eaten frogs, but not on Christmas <laughs> Eve. So, <laughs> okay, sorry I interrupted. So you were down in there you do weird cleaning out these oh, no, buckets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do weird stuff in Ohio, but not that weird. Um, no, yeah, so I'm down there just like listening, you know, listening to these podcasts. Um, well, you know, I dove into these podcasts and audio books for a couple of weeks. Then I heard a reference. I heard this guy on that same podcast talking about his nonprofit. Um, this is where they teach like impoverished kids and like bad, you know, and generally poorer communities. And they teach these kids like 
how to be entrepreneurs, how to make money, how to set up a vision plan for their lives and like, um, just teach them how to escape poverty. And I'm like, well, okay, that's awesome. And then the guy's like, not his catchphrase, but something he's known for saying is like getting the goods in the woods. And that really resonated with me because I love nature and all that. So I'm like, all right, man, I'm going to have to check this guy's website out. <clears throat> um, I got on the website and they had this online roadmap thing and it's all free. It's a nonprofit. And I got on there and I did start doing the roadmap. Well, I was doing my magnificent future vision. That's what it was called. And you, you think about when you're 90 years old, like where you want to see yourself and or where do you see yourself and just describe the whole thing. You know, I was on, you know, I was with like, like whatever my great grandkids and or great, great grandkids or something. And, um, at a cabin in like the mountains and, you know, like whatever I plotted out my whole life and how, you know, from that point or at that point and like, it felt like that might be possible. Um, I kind of felt like I, I felt worthy or started to almost feel worthy of that, or like I could possibly achieve that. And at no point in these prior 29 years had I ever felt like I wasn't going to just work until I died and died poor and then left my son to figure out whatever to or left, you know, my son lived the exact same circumstances I lived and that like scared me to death still does but not as much as it used to when that happened i dove even deeper into making that happen making that you know when, where i saw myself when i was 90 like how do i make that a reality so the entire summer so i read like almost 60 or listened to almost 60 audiobooks read a few books listened to like oh i know for a fact over 500 podcasts last year um and I mean, I'm still nothing but like trying to get educated. I learned how money worked, you know, real estate because of all the odd jobs and things that I was able to do and all the tools I had acquired rehabbing a house, but like retaining some of the equity and renting it out. That, that is where I need, that's what I needed to make happen. Uh, by chance or the universe or whatever, a four unit, a few houses down from the house I was renting in or renting became available or it was about to become available. I saw people cleaning it out and the city had boarded it up. And so I was keeping an eye on it and I caught the realtor over there taking pictures. He was getting ready to list it. I asked him what he was going to list it for. And he said, you know, 34, five, 34,500. And I was like, okay, I'm buying this. He's like, just kind of looked at me and that guy was crazy and you know, couldn't afford it. I'm sure. I, I, Cause I probably couldn't have, and I definitely couldn't have, but, um, I had somebody in mind that would partner with me. He had to go to Germany, so he couldn't partner with me. Uh, he's in the Air Force Reserves. So now I was like, you know, what do I, you know, how do I make this happen? The guy that was working on the house next to the house that I rented, uh, he had bought it for his daughters to go to college. I had already mentioned to it to mentioned it to him and um, what I was trying to do with it. Well, when I told him that, you know, my buddy had backed out because of, you know, where he had to go, uh, he, he said, let me get back to you, but I might want to do this with you. And sure enough, he did. We used the self, his self-directed IRA to buy it. And, um, he's not allowed to touch it. I had to do the whole rehab myself. Well, anyways, this 
this proved to myself that I could do something, I guess, or I proved to myself that I could do something. And then, you know, it made us both money with his money. So now he trusts me a little bit more. We've, we've bought more property since then. Um, but I did that successfully. And then a house came available that, um, through these strategies that I learned, you know, like solve somebody's problem. I was able to get a house for $20,000. Um, and that was just solving somebody else's problem. And then she's a really sweet lady. But so I borrowed the money from my dad, who after seeing me do the four unit, I think he's always kind of wanted to help. He just wasn't sure how. So he loaned me the $20,000 to buy my house. Um, I had saved up a decent amount of money. And then also I was start, you know, I was working on my credit. So I was getting some credit cards. And then sorry if I'm like going like really deep no no so I just wanted I just wanted no it's good but I just wanted to clarify so when you're saying 35 uh, 34,000 roughly that's not the deposit that's the actual whole amount of the property (laughs) yeah no that's that's how much the entire property costs yes okay It's that would be yeah, it was, okay, a partial so, deposit in Australia. A, a property is very expensive in Australia. That's why I wanted to like the cheapest. You're probably going to find something for three hundred thousand. The cheapest, and then that's probably one bedroom. Yeah, studio. <laughs> yeah, um, the price and and the condition it was in are pretty pretty well correlated. So okay, like it was a solid <laughs> six month rehab. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so I'm still re yeah, still associated with rehab. It's just, you know, like rehabbing houses, not going to rehab. So these are these, po- <laughs> now we're in the positive changes. We're in the positive. Okay. So your so. dad's lent you the money, the 20,000. <clears> Dad lent me the 20,000 to actually purchase the house. Um, and I mean, uh, whatever we worked out our agreement. I give him X amount a month and you know, the first part of its interest and the rest of it. Well, all the payments at first were interest, and then it was paying, you know, paying down the um, actual balance. Now I have possession of a house, so like, you know, one of the things is controlling the assets. So like now I've, I have, you know, whatever, thirty-five percent ownership in the four unit. I have a hundred percent ownership of my own house. Well, it needed a complete rehab, so that was pretty expensive as well. Back to learning about you know, what you can do with money, how money works, how partnerships and structuring deals and um, just all the freedom you have to make things happen and like create money. I looked up, you know, the rules with the self-directed IRA. Well, my partner can lend me money and make interest on the money. And that all is all fair and well and tax free for him. He wasn't super interested in price gouging or like loan sharking me some money. So, um, he actually did it at a really low interest rate, which was super nice of him. But to get him to do that, I signed over actually I think all of my equity to the four unit. Or that was the that was the collateral for the loan. So I put up, you know, say thirty thousand dollars worth of equity for, you know, a fifteen thousand dollar loan. So that gave me more money to rehab the house and then freed up a little bit of my uh, the time that I have to spend to earn money to live to knock out, you know, the rehab of my house. 
What sort of interest rates are you looking at for the um, investor interest? Because it's a high risk compared to going to a bank, it's high risk for the investor. What sort of interest rates would they normally put on it and what, do, what did this guy put on it? Okay, so I think um, so. Normally, there'd be like interest rates and points, and points is like a you know percent or a tenth of a percent, or um, and then there is you know the regular interest rate. Um, I want to say like a hard money loan, like a a non friendship or you know non relationship, just you know loan somebody collateralizing it with you know a building that you're gonna have to fight to get if they default. Uh, the interest rates anywhere like eight to twelve percent. I'd say is the normal. And then, you know, right now here, our bank rates are like 2.8%, 3.5%, super low. Um, mm-hmm. my, my dad's interest rate was 25%. And um, he's not a ruthless um, bastard. I That 25% over the time period worked out to exactly how much money he tried to loan me years prior that I never paid him. So it's technically interest-free. I'm just paying him back all the money that I never paid him back. So I can't. I'd like to villainize him because it'd be fun, but I can't. But no, my partner's great. Um, He charged me like 1% or 2% interest. And then actually I'm managing our properties um and the percentage and the money i would be making for managing the properties like 10 percent off of the top of the of the gross rents that come in uh that's going to pay down most of the loan by the time it's due as well so i kind of just got paid up front from him for stuff that if we stuck together would i would have made that money anyways so so the one that you uh, got the money off your dad, the 20000 what happened to that one? Did you Have you sold it? No. So I live – this is the house I live in, um, me and oh, okay. wife and two kids. Um, I rehabbed the entire freaking thing, about killed myself doing it. Um, so that's like now, instead of killing myself with drugs, now I'm like killing myself with work and I'm really trying – I'm really working on that like healthy balance. Yeah. It you you know you don't just figure it all all out one day. Um, you know, you have to work towards it. So, and I didn't learn the first time. Every day's a learning day. Again, but whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so let's just I'll do the numbers on that real quick because it's really I want to inspire some people. So I bought the house for twenty thousand, and roughly, yeah, you know that was a good deal regardless, but. I spent 28,500 rehabbing it and materials and then some of the labor of people that I hired to help and, you know, putting air conditioning in it and stuff like that. So 28,500 and then the 20,000 that costs to buy it. So now we're at, we'll just call it $50,000. Um, my neighbor, mm-hmm. like literally two weeks ago, just listed their house now it's under contract and they just got an appraisal it appraised at 144 and we literally have the same house except for their house isn't completely new on the inside like mine so i'm going to accept their comp as as very realistic so you got roughly around 90 to ninety-five thousand dollars of equity sitting in there yeah 
Except the, nice. the 28 that I spent to rehab it and all that, that's already, I'm already back to debt free for the most part from that. Maybe not like 10,000 left. And then I owe my dad right under 20,000 because all the interest is paid off. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, 90, 90, a hundred thousand, whatever. So I'm trying to get a loan from the bank right now at, you know, that 3% we talked about to where I can borrow 75% of the value of my house. I can pay off my dad. I can pay off um, my partner and then still have, you know, $60,000, $70,000 to go buy my own rental properties free and clear or to put with my partner's money and go buy something bigger like a 12-unit or a 16-unit multifamily and rehab it and make some serious cash flow. So. Would you would you want to do it by yourself and just take the sixty k profit and sixty k that the bank gives you, and um, do a development yourself, so you're not splitting the profits? No. Yes, I mean yes, but no. Um, it would work out to do it that way. And I could potentially use that next asset to borrow against and, and repeat that process, kind of the Burr method, like buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Um, or if I partner with, say, my partner or somebody, a third party or three of us get together, whatever the case is, and I can make that leap into smaller commercial multifamily properties of that, you know, 10 to 50 units. If I can make that leap from four units, duplexes, and single families into that category, then I'm more likely to find more people who are willing to invest in what I can bring to the table again. So I can find more people to bring money. And then, you know, I make money, they make money, everybody keeps making money, but it would give me that proof of that um, uh, proof of viability or, you know, what I. For some reason, I've lost the words. Proof of concept. There we go. Yeah. How do you, I know you mentioned the the four unit one was down the the road from you, but how are you identifying these properties? Like, what are you looking for when you're doing a feasibility on them? So for me, like for my specific situation, so I'm good at fixing things up. Um, so I need to be able. That's where I bring value. I he buys the property. I fix it up. He pays for the materials and buys the property. I provide basically the labor, the fit, you know, skilled labor, basic labor, whatever. Um, then we take what we paid for it plus materials. So we take all the cash we spent and then we get it appraised. And the difference between what we spent and what it appraises for originally me and him split 50, 50. And then now it's, you know, kind of going in my direction, like 55 or you know, 45, 55, 45 or whatever, just because, um, he does, he, first off, he's not allowed to do anything because of the way that his, uh, investments are structured to be tax, you know, maximum tax benefit for him. He can't, you know, physically do anything to it. And then he's just like a super great partner. So he's kind of helping. He's glad that I'm making him money, I think. And he's rewarding me. So that's that's how our can you say what this guy can you say what this guy uh does uh so he works for uh the university of dayton he is an engineer for the university of dayton and then he also teaches a little bit there 
Yeah. I just wondered um, because, I mean, I know that you've got your life straightened out now and you've sort of – turn the corner from all these bad decisions that you were previously previously uh making but there was an uh, there was a, a time where he had to really take a chance on you and and you know you were someone with a little bit of a shady background in terms of your decision making um so I wondered what what career path he was in that so I didn't know whether or not he was in uh counseling or drug and alcohol rehab or or what so generally when I meet people, I don't lead right away with like, you know, Hey, I'm certainly I've been in prison <laughs> this is my street. trying out on hard drugs. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> now it's only a simple Google search away, you know? So like literally anybody that knows, you know, knows my first and last name can look up all the stupid stuff I've done and all the charges and all the other stuff. So you know, I assume that he knew that I had a past and I had alluded to it because I didn't want him to just to be blindsided one day. Um, yeah. But after, before, I know I made sure before we bought the house together, before me and him were in any formal anything um, that he knew about my past. You know, I didn't go into like gory detail. He didn't get a, he didn't get an interview, you know, interview like this. By any means, <laughs> that doesn't no make somebody confident that they're going to handle their stuff well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, he actually uh, he heard he, I think he read something I posted or you know whatever it was, but it was way more in depth. And this was like two months ago. He he came back. He's like, I was on vacation. I just googled your name and yeah, I didn't know it was that recent. And I was like, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Oops. Like, but I'm doing good. He's like, well, yeah, you're already doing good. So we're already here now. So I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> so what's the what's the the plan now to grow this and, and to build on this momentum? You you mentioned that you're wanting to do the big development. So what does that sort of what does the next six months or this year look like for you? So I mean that's that's really what I'm going through right now. Um like I'm finishing up, you know, whatever our last property was. I have the right people in my life. And, you know, I'm friends with like two of my old bosses that are great people and both into real estate. And one's like a real estate attorney and one's an investor and some sort of attorney and pilot, whatever. Um, And then I've got my partner and, you know, people that have money that have seen me be successful with smaller multifamily. So I really want to go larger. Like I want my goal at this exact moment is to buy something over 10 doors and then, you know, value add situation where I rehab them as they come available or if it's vacant, rehab it and uh, gain equity, get something that's bringing in 60, 70, 80,000 a year gross, you know, obviously not profit, but um, I want to take that step to do something bigger. It's just, I've, dove so much into this and then just had the grace of building really good relationships to where I feel like it really might be possible to do even more than that. Um, to where I'm not physically breaking my back, rehabbing them like myself. Um, I, I can be a GC here in Ohio without a license, like a general contractor. 
It's just without giant surpluses of money, it's more efficient for me to do a lot of the work or, you know, be really hands on. Um, but I want to get, I would rather do two deals and manage two at the same time or back to back and make the same amount as just doing one. But like, you know, like my neck hurts right now. That's what like, I look horrible. If I was a stand up, I'm like covered in paint and grease. And I don't even know if I own clothes without paint stains or something on them. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I want to, I want to work that direction. That's awesome. You're also doing drug and alcohol counseling now. <clears throat> so I don't, I'm not like a you know drug and alcohol counselor, but that nonprofit that I talked about earlier, it's, it's one life fully org. So that's where I did that vision plan. And they, they actually came out with a, a roadmap and then it's their, their stuff is vision planning, finances, wellness, and relationships. And that's the four things they really drill into. And it's literally like it was designed initially to help poor kids get out of poverty, like to, to break that. Um, it's just a guy named Tim Road that made it. And that was his way of like contributing. <clears throat> it just happened to help me a lot. And then now they've kind of started to like grow and like increase their outreach. So working with them for the last, uh, I think we're on like, I think we've yeah surpassed a year now working with them. just learning from doing stuff with them <clears throat> they you know they all knew about me being in recovery they gave me the opportunity to i had suggested it previously and then i was given the opportunity to create like a, a one life fully lived recovery mastermind so there's a couple of us that run it they're like certified guides for them or we're allowed to use all their uh, material and stuff like that but compared to coaching programs or you know counseling or other things that might be really expensive like i wanted price not to be a barrier so yeah this we've only done one like just up to date you know i'm just telling you what it is we've only done one group so far uh we're coming yeah. we have one week left and so i like i personally sponsored a couple people in the group like i you know put the money i paid for them to go and i'd raise money on my birthday for this exact reason anyways but um i'm saving that for you know to keep sponsoring people through it but it's i think that treating your recovery like a business is a really good tool like or i think that that gives you a lot of tools so like really looking at how to be effective and efficient with uh your time or like you know using the one life stuff like what is your why? What, why, you know, my why is my son. And then like changing the course or the trajectory of my family. You know what I mean? We had, we're not on a very good trajectory. And then now it's, it's looking pretty positive. Like we're going to Disneyland. That's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. Everybody's <laughs> super excited about that. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, the relationships, like, and that was a huge thing that, like, I really drilled into people. Like, um, I think all but one is, like, completely sober, and he's still, like, the one is, like, smoking weed or something, so whatever. Um, he used to be into really hard drugs. But it's, like, you know, you need to hold up your end in a relationship. So, like, a lot of people in uh, recovery, I know you, you mentioned it earlier, like, that uh, victim mentality or 
like the friendship being a two-way street. I forgot what it was now, but I was going to say, but um, it's like where there, you, you know, you're accountable. <laughs> I'm, it's like I'm tired. I'll be honest with you. Um, so <laughs> we like we've had accountability partners and just like trying to trying to set these guys up to be successful to build successful relationships to attract good people into their lives by being good people and um just everything that worked really good for me and other people that are in recovery and kind of you know collaborating on this and we're just trying to figure out the the most effective way to help other people that are sober have a badass life like that's the that's the end that's game. awesome so. how can people find you <laughs> So I have sterlingshout.com. Not the greatest website, but it, it works. Um, it does its job. And then uh, One Life Fully Lived, I always give I always um, give them as a way to find me just because of how much I support their mission. Um, it's onelifefullylived.org. And I just think everybody should check that out. They're not like, you know, it's not like a pushy sales thing, whatever. Like they are trying to make the world a better place and help people from situations like I was in get out of those situations. So That's awesome. Well, I'll link them in the show notes. Thanks so much, Sterling. Thanks for sharing your story. I can't even speak. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me on, Fiona. Um, and thanks for bearing with me through those stories. I know some of those were rough. So <laughs> No, it was good. It was um, – I think it's important for people to hear – uh, where decisions can take you in, in life and um, how you can turn it around. So thanks for sharing. Absolutely. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Bye.